This morning, after more than a year, during the global pandemic of 2020, 2021, and now even into 2022, we have been studying the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 1. We know it as the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It has been a long, heavy series, but surprisingly a relevant study for us these last year or year and a half. And, and God's word is like that. God's word is alive. Hebrews, Hebrews 4, verse number 12. God's word is profitable, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. The things that were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. Romans 15, verse number four. And you see, while, while Isaiah spoke of God's judgment upon Judah, he also declared the promise of the Messiah's coming. And that is our comfort and that is our, our hope. And this morning, we conclude with Isaiah 66, an exhortation from the Lord about worship. And those whom God created and those whom God redeemed have often failed to worship him as we ought. But the day will come when all flesh, Isaiah 66 verse 23, all flesh will worship him. I've titled my message this morning, future worship. If you'll pray with me, and then we'll study the scripture together. God in heaven, we thank you for your written revelation to us. We thank you for preserving what you said to to Judah through the prophet Isaiah for these many, many centuries, even these millennia. Lord, I thank you for what you've done in the past. I thank you for what you purpose to do yet in the future. I thank you, God, for creating us and redeeming us and for choosing us for worship. And God, so often your people have failed to worship you for who you are as they ought, but we look forward to the day when all the wrongs will be made right and you will restore your people to dwell with you in perfect worship. I pray that your spirit might be our teacher now as we conclude the book of Isaiah, as we study this final chapter Lord, convict us, our minds, our hearts, so that we might be true worshipers of you, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We know that God commissioned King Solomon to build a house for his name, a place where God's presence would dwell among his people in the holy city of Jerusalem. I'd like to begin this morning by giving you some fun facts about Solomon's temple. The wood... For Solomon's temple was provided by King David's friend, the king of Tyre in Sidon, according to 1 Kings chapter 5. He shipped great cedars from Lebanon to the port city of Joppa on the Mediterranean Sea. He shipped that wood on rafts. It was then unloaded in Joppa and carried across land to Jerusalem, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 2. The stone for Solomon's temple was hewn by hand away from the temple mount and then transported to the building site so that no tools would be heard uh, making noise while the temple was being built, according to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7. 
No expense was spared in the building of Solomon's temple. It was adorned with precious stones and gold from Arabia, 2 Chronicles 3. It's estimated to have cost upwards of $6 billion by today's valuation. Of course, that's with inflation. We know about that these days. In comparison, U.S. Bank Stadium only cost $1 billion to build. And you can insert any Vikings joke that you want at this point here. Six billion dollars for Solomon's temple. At its completion, Solomon declared a huge inaugural celebration to dedicate the building in, in 19, I'm sorry, in 953 BC. The ceremonies included a sermon and a dedication offering of 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep, and then Solomon proclaimed a great 14-day feast. 2 Chronicles 6 and 1 Kings 8. And upon the, the, the completion of Solomon's temple, that worship center, the Bible tells us this in 1 Kings chapter 8. I have it for you there on the screen. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel, and he said, It was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, You did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son, that is King Solomon, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he has spoken. And I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. The building of that first temple, Solomon's temple, was the crowning achievement of Solomon's reign, a worship center for Yahweh, a place for God's people to gather together to bring their offerings and worship their God. But there was a recognition by Solomon in verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. And so in spite of Solomon's extravagant efforts to build a house for God, he recognized that no house could contain God. No church building or worship center is sufficient for a transcendent God. Now, fast forward in your thinking, 400 years, the Babylonians would conquer Jerusalem and they would destroy that temple, Solomon's temple. Nebuchadnezzar would take God's people captive, exile to Babylon for 70 years until their return, at which point their first order of business would be to rebuild the temple. We know it as the second temple, or Zerubbabel's temple in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. And, or Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and it was regarding this now that God speaks through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 66. Look at Isaiah 66, verse number one. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, the wood and the stone. Remember the wood and the stone from Solomon's temple. Those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one will I look, and on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Folks, God is not looking for a place of worship. 
God is looking for a people who worship him rightly. I would offer you number one in your notes, characteristics of right worship. Characteristics of right worship from verses one and two. Now you may remember the dialogue between Jesus and the woman at the, at the well, Jacob's well in, in Samaria in John chapter four. The woman asked Jesus about the proper place of worship for there was a dispute in the day. The Samaritans worshiped God on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshiped the Lord on Mount Zion in the city of Jerusalem. But Jesus explained that the place of worship was not at issue. And so also now God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah telling us that he is looking for those with a poor and a contrite spirit. He's looking for those who will tremble at his word. And so the characteristics of right worship from this text, first humility of one's spirit. Humility of one's spirit. And there is a lot of pride that can become part of our corporate worship for we, we dress up and we rehearse well and we congratulate one another on our attendance and our performance. But what did God say back in, in chapter 57? Seven, verse 15, he said, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. May we never be like the Pharisee in the temple that despised the tax collector, but may we be like the tax collector who beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the one whom God wants to worship him. And in verse number two here, Isaiah 66, verse two, there's a second characteristic, I think, of those whom God will look upon, those whom God wants to worship him, and that's those who tremble at his word, trembling at God's word. When God's word is read, when God's word is proclaimed, we stand down in holy horror, trembling in fear at God's word, the scripture. It was a minister in Scotland who wrote of a time of revival among, among his church folks, and, and here's what he He said, it's copied for you there in the back of your notes. He says, it was a common thing as soon as the Bible was opened after the preliminary services and just as the reader began, here you will observe it was the simple reading of the word without preaching, yet such was the power upon the minds of the people that it was a common thing as soon as the Bible was opened after the preliminary services and just as the reader began, for great meltings to come upon the hearers. The deepest attention was paid to every word as the sacred verses were slowly and solemnly enunciated. He goes on to say, then the silent tear might be seen stealing down the rugged but expressive faces turned upon the reader. It was often a stirring sight to witness the multitudes assembling during the dark winter evenings to trace their progress, progress as they came in all directions across the moors and mountains by the blazing torches which they carried to light their way to the places of meeting. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. And personal inconveniences was little thought of when the hungering soul sought to be satisfied. Folks, we're blessed to have a beautiful church building We have a beautiful campus here and it's completely paid for. 
And we have opportunity on a regular basis, weekly, multiple times a week, to to come to this place in comfort and worship. But our worship in this place is worthless if we do not come with humility of spirit and if we do not tremble before God's word when it is opened and when it is read. That's the characteristic of right worship and that's whom God will look upon. May Fourth Baptist Church never be known for its building, but for its people who rightly worship. Now, conversely, there were also those who, who worshiped wrongly, and that's, that's number two, characteristics of wrong worship. Characteristics of wrong worship. Look at Isaiah 66, verses three and, and four. He who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their delusions and bring them, bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Verses three and four. Now, killing a bull and sacrificing a lamb, verse number three, were legitimate acts of worship according to the Mosaic law. However, in this case, the people weren't sacrificing animals. They were murdering animals, letter A, murderous sacrifice. What's the difference? The difference is not necessarily in the manner, but in the motive of their worship. Back in Isaiah 29, verse 13, I don't have it for you there on the screen, but, but God said, these people draw near with their mouths, they honor me with their lips, but they have removed their hearts far from me. So evidently, we can go through the motions and we can do the right thing, but our heart attitude, our motive destroys what we're doing. Also, look at verse three again offering a grain offering and burning incense there in verse three. Those were legitimate acts of worship according to the Mosaic law. However, in this case, the people were not presenting their offerings as if, or they were presenting their offerings as if they were uh, worshiping idols. And they presented their offerings and their burning of, of incense here in their own ways. I call this perverted offerings. There's murderous sacrifice, there's perverted offerings. And this reminds me of Cain and Abel. You'll remember back early in the the pages of Genesis, Cain brought an offering to God of his own choosing. And Cain was sincere about that offering, about that worship, for it was his specialty. It was the fruit of the ground, but it wasn't God's way. What did God require? He required the blood of a lamb. And so Cain brought a perverted offering. And folks, we can master our craft of worship, and I think we do, but while failing to actually worship. We can perform our liturgy with perfection, and yet we can do it with perversion. Now, here's what makes all of this the most devastating thing. It it was that the worship leaders were misleading the people in their pretense of worship. Look at verse number five, Isaiah 66, verse number five. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Now, who are the ones that tremble at his word? It is the right worshipers according to verse number two. These are the the true worshipers. These are the humble and the contrite people in verse two that tremble at his word. 
Verse five again. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake. What's going on there? There are some, there were some categories of discrimination happening evidently among the worshipers. There was an elitism among the worshipers. One group was controlling the participation in worship and was dismissing the other group of worshipers, the true worshipers. They said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. So in the end, those who offer wrong worship, as described in verses three and four, would be ashamed in verse five and discriminating against the true worshipers. And the judgment that would fall on these worshipers in verse number six is described as a sound. Look at verse six. The sound of a noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice from the Lord. So, so picture this. We've got the city of Jerusalem. There's a sound coming from Jerusalem. Even, let's narrow it, there's a sound coming from the temple. What sound is this? It is the sound of the voice of the Lord, the end of verse six, who fully repays his enemies. And this I'm gonna call the consequence of wrong worship. We have the characteristics of right worship and wrong worship and now the consequences of wrong worship and the consequence is a sound from the city of Jerusalem, from the temple. Hello, it's the voice of God. What threat is there in a, a sound or in a, a voice? Bible commentator Gary Smith says this, if God's mighty voice can speak so that the whole world is created, Genesis chapter one, just imagine how destructive his thundering voice will be when he speaks and his judgment instantly happens. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was there with his disciples? He was praying, he was preparing for his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. The Bible says a detachment of troops and the officers of the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. They were looking for Jesus. Judas was gonna betray Jesus with a kiss. They were going to arrest Jesus. They're looking for Jesus. Where's Jesus? And Jesus said, I am he. And what happened in that moment when he said, I am he, John 18 verse three tells us that they fell back on the ground. All of the burly, manly soldiers collapsed at his voice. So also, when God speaks a word of displeasure, it is the consequence of wrong worship who will fully repay his enemies, the end of verse number six. So folks, we assemble here in this place for corporate worship and we try to be organized and prepared. And we do the best that we can. We wanna do things decently and in order. We ought to. We ought to give our best to the master. But at the end of the day, our worship will be refused if it is not offered with humility of heart, trembling at God's word, and God's voice will repay us. And that ought to make us shudder. Now, in the following verses, there is a message of comfort and hope and salvation. And I wanna, I wanna conclude the book of Isaiah this morning by reading 
all of Isaiah, all of the, the chapter 66 this morning. And so as I do some extended reading, I'm gonna ask that you be diligent, labor with me, follow in your copy of the scripture, and if you do, it will conclude well. But I think it's important that we, we read the scripture, all right? Verse number seven, there's some odd questions. It's like a riddle of sorts, verse seven. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard of such a thing? Has anybody heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? That's not the way it works, right? Verse number seven. Verse eight, shall the earth be made to give birth in one day or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I cause delivery... Shall I who caused delivery shut up the womb, says your God. Can, can you imagine conceiving and delivering a baby in the same day? Maybe that would be the mercy of God. Maybe that would not be the mercy of God. I'm not sure. But this is describing the suddenness of Israel's return to the land as if a baby is born before she's in pain, before she's in labor. And the illustration now of this mother giving birth and caring for a child continues. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. Which, by the way, New Testament believers ought to be those that rejoice with Jerusalem and mourn for Jerusalem. And without becoming political, I would just declare that we need to support God's people, Israel, in every way. Rejoice with Jerusalem, mourn for her. Verse 11, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed, you will nurse. On her side you shall be carried and be dandled, is is my new King James, or bounced, I think is the ESV, on her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. We understand the imagery of the giving birth of a baby, the caring for a child, the safety and the security and the nurturing that's taking place there. Like a mother who cares for her newborn child, God will care for Jerusalem in a very personal way. And these things are pointing forward to beyond Israel's return from Babylon to the millennial kingdom yet to come. Furthermore, verse 14 Don't give up on me. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord will be many. When the Lord comes to restore his people during the millennium, he will rain down judgment upon his enemies. We like this part. At long last, God will right the wrongs. He will smite the wicked and the terrorists and the immoral and the heathens. But also the false worshipers of this world. Verse 17, those who sanctify themselves, purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, 
eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. Pigs and rats were ceremonially unclean animals according to Leviticus 11 verses 7 and 29. This is describing the antithesis of the prescribed worship of Yahweh. When we think about God judging the world in the eschaton, Remember, it's not only the heathens and the pagans and the terrorists and the immoral, it's the false worshipers of Yahweh. The consequences of wrong worship are grave and God's judgment at the end of the age will be upon those who do not worship him rightly. How do I know this? Verse 18, verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, God says. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues and you need to underscore this line and they shall come and see my glory. Folks, everything that has been created, everything that has been redeemed, it's all about God's glory, and someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the what? To the glory of God the Father. This is where we're going, future worship. I'll title it this in your notes, number four. The conclusion We've got the characteristics of right and wrong worship. We have the consequences of wrong worship. We have the conclusion, number four, of right worship. Look at verse number 19. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape, I will send to the, to the nations, to Tarshish and Pole and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan to the coastlands afar off. We, we need to underscore this part now who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles there, verse number 19. I hope you understand where all of human history is is directed now. Verse 20, then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations on horses and chariots and litters and mules and camels to my holy mountain in Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I will also take of some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants in your name remain. And it shall come to pass from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, that's day after day, week after week, year after year. Verse 23, the end of verse 23, what's it say? All flesh shall come to worship before me. You need to underscore that. We might argue about some of the particulars of how things conclude in in the end times. Well, one thing is clear. All flesh will come to worship before me, says the Lord. This is the conclusion, folks. This is the end of the story. Don't despair. As you watch the news and you hear of current events and you follow politics domestically or or internationally, geopolitical events, and you fear and you fret and you wring your hands and you lament the the decline of human civilization, stop it. Because at the end, all flesh is going to worship before him. The book of Revelation describes the horrific judgment of God that, that falls on this world. And it describes the amazing worship of God in heaven above. Revelation chapter 4 
You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Some of you love to read history. Some of you love to learn of of prophecy and, and there are debates about the causes of history and the details of prophecy, but But one thing is clear. God has purposed us all, past, present, and future, for for worship. A big takeaway for me from the book of Isaiah, from the life of Isaiah the prophet, is that God wants his people to worship him rightly. We remember perhaps a high point in the book of Isaiah, chapter number six, when Isaiah was lamenting all of the corruption among God's people in Judah. Chapter five, woe to them, woe to them, woe to them, woe to them. He sees the glory of God seated on his throne. He says, woe is me. May God receive our worship today as imperfect as it is. And may we prepare for future worship because he is worthy. Let me pray. God in heaven, we bow our heads and our hearts before you in humility. We tremble before your word. Lord, we recognize you as the almighty creator of the universe, as the loving redeemer of mankind. Lord, you have sovereignly orchestrated all of the events of human history to a conclusion, and that conclusion is your glory. And so, Lord, even this morning is as we come to the, the end of this service and we, we express with our, our mouths in song words of worship, would you receive them as we intend them? May we worship rightly from hearts that are toward you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.